Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. You can hear that Olympic music, tired of it after 17 days, but we're not yet. Pyeongchang, the smallest town to hold an Olympic since Lillehammer, Norway in 1994, but with the worldwide coverage, you don't think of how small the town is. It is an incredible immersion for these two weeks. Dan Calaruso, the chief global poobah of Reuters. What better person to help us analyze it? How are you? I've been staying up late. I'll, I'll admit to watching these Olympics. I was not excited about these Olympic Games coming through, not any more excited than normal about them, but but Chloe Kim, Michaela Schifrin, the North Korea, South Korea women's hockey team. I mean, it has turned into a very watchable event despite NBC's gaffes and a few other things. It's really kind of an engaging game. It's a lot, I think a lot more engaging than people expected. Yeah, and I, and I think the people that come out of, and we'll do this next week and the week after, the fleeting Halley's Comet superstars that come out of the Olympics and are America's heroes for like two months. Chloe Kim is there. Michaela Schifrin probably will be there. Uh, the slope boarders were there for the first week. And the hockey players, if they go anywhere, these kids and the castoffs, that's a great story. And from my perspective, the fact that these Olympics have not gone into boardroom and business oblivion, as we said, this is a small town. And 80,000 foreign tourists, 40,000 total hotel rooms, makes for some mayhem. Yet, they sold about a million tickets, which was originally only about 61% of the allotment at the beginning of the games. They've caught up. But uh, amazing how you can make empty seats on television dress up and look like skaters and losers, you know? It, it, well, it, indeed. I mean, it's, it's tough. You see some of the crowds are, are sparse. Um, but by and large, as a vehicle, I think once, you know, the military tensions and geopolitical strife and the fact that it's a winter games in a small town, you know, I, it feels like a lot. But if beyond that, um, this Olympics is going to serve its purpose and it's not going to be detrimental to the Olympic cause, which, quite frankly, has been under severe social and economic pressure for the past at least seven or eight years. Yeah. You go to Athens lately, you see what you mean. Uh, London was fine because it didn't change the way they lived or built facilities. Rio, uh, miserable promises un under-delivered. And, of course, Sochi, you never know what the, where the dollars went. This will go down if the second week is like the first as the Olympics that could. $13 billion, a quarter of the cost of Sochi, and... There are the typical problems with the media of not getting from Seoul to Pyeongchang or the remote mountains. But that happens, happens in every Winter Olympics. You know, bulletin to us, we don't have 13,000-foot mountains in the center of a town near an airport. So, you know, suck it up and enjoy it. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on yeah. that one. And the other thing, by the way, about all of this is the, as you said, I think it is the most important issue to watch the North Korean pairs figure skaters doing well. I don't think it mattered to me whether they did well or not, but the way they were received by the South Korean crowd, it's astronomical politically, and everybody is trying to focus on the games. Well, here's the one time where, forget the games, focus on the politics here. It's tremendous. 
Right. Isn't that isn't it amazing that, you know, you, you talk about it a lot more um, uh, aggressively than I do. You really do believe in like the sports or sports power to fix things and, and address society's ills. I tend to think it's a particle accelerator for the worst qualities in human beings. But <laughs> that, that said, I do feel like, you know, the Olympics have that special purpose. And that's what that's what is coming out as a real positive from these games. Well, and, and frankly, if you focus on some parts of this world, given what's just happened here in, you know, my city, my area, Parkland, and others, that's not what this show is all about, but you focus on the worst part of human behavior, and then you segue into Scott Hamilton, our interview today. If those people who are over 40 who listen don't know who Scott Hamilton is, they should be institutionalized, but he won uh, gold medals in various Olympics, four consecutive U.S. championships, the 84 Olympics was his, the 1990 U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame, but he lost his mom to breast cancer. He battled testicular cancer. He was diagnosed with brain cancer, and he's a world-class philanthropist. Now what he's doing is trying to quarterback the merging of young hockey players learning and young ice skaters learning on behalf of the National Predators and the NHL to try to do a Learn the Skate program. Scott Hamilton, an amazing human being. Here's his interview now. So off to the Olympics. (laughs) Excited about uh, Korea? Yeah, it's going to be exciting. You know, it's uh, there's uh, you know the events are going to be beautifully skated. Uh, Competition is going to be really interesting. All four disciplines are going to be competed well. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited. The ladies competition, you know, Medvedeva has looked unbeatable. Uh, Zagitova is is I think my favorite. Yeah. But she tends to make mistakes where Medvedeva doesn't. So you know, uh, then the third place Russian girl is is really super strong probably should medal um but weak on spins and there's a little bit of an achilles heel all the the two of the three russians have sort of an achilles heel a little bit um but you know it'd be really exciting to see where america fits in with this new young team on the ladies side on the men's side Ooh, i don't know maybe you know nah it's hard to say yeah that's why they skate right that's why we hold the event yeah you never know how it's gonna go men's side nathan chen looks like he could medal he's up against you know these powerhouses that have proven themselves time you know yeah second olympic cycle so It'll be really interesting to see where he fits in when you put them all on the same ice and the same warm-up and the same, you know, apples-to-apples um, scoring system on the night. It'll be really interesting. But I think he's got a shot. I mean, outside shot for gold, but um, I would expect him to medal. You're in the dynamics. We'll talk about all your philanthropic, charitable, learn-to-skate, predators, all of that world, and it's a substantial world. But NBC also asks you to be current on Olympic stars it just means a lot more work for you, right? But uh, you're, you are current, but you're also doing other things. Well, I love skating. You know, I love skating, and I, I, I love to watch it. I love to, you know, follow it. I love to, you know, I, I, I don't feel 100% comfortable prognosticating as far as, you know, each event and how it all works. That but- doesn't stop lesser intellects in other sports, by the way, just so <laughs> as we know. I know we all have an opinion, right? But it's yeah. like... I love to watch it. I love to promote it. I love uh, everything about skating. It's given me the life that I have today, and and I kind of get it, you know, yeah. from a, a really specific point of view. And um, you know, again, it's just uh, a phenomenal sport, uh, an industry that needs a lot of help right now. But um, it's a great sport, very popular. It's the anchor sport of the Olympics, and. It's always fun to go and witness history. Well, let's talk about that that anchor sport of the Olympics and the business. Uh, judging, 
um, athleticism, recruiting, commercialization, media, a lot of things to talk about. How is the business of skating at 30,000 feet? You know, it's getting better. I think it's hit its lowest point. I okay. think it's on its way back up again. If you look back to the world championships that were held in Boston, Massachusetts, it was to the rafters. Oh. And it was like the good old days. You know, they always talk about the good old days yeah. where every single nationals, we set another attendance record. And, and you know, this one was, you know, Boston knows how to do skating. They just get it. They did yeah. a great nationals. They did a great world championships. They just did our biggest skate to eliminate cancer fundraiser we've ever had uh, by like more like quadruple almost. So it's, it's, uh, it, Boston is kind of a breath of fresh air for skating. And I think that when you look at what's happening in LA, what's happening in Colorado, what's happening in Boston as far as coaching and as far as excellence, what you see happening a little bit in Chicago, um, and Florida, you know, we've got some phenomenal training centers yeah. that are going to start pumping out good skaters. And hopefully um, we'll have one of those right here in Nashville sooner than later. Let's, before we get into philanthropy, it's been over two years since your diagnosis for the third brain tumor. How are you feeling? How are things going? It's, um, I stay vigilant. I tell everybody else, you know, to stay vigilant, know what's going on with your body, understand, you know, when something says something to you, act on it right away. And with this one, I've just sort of felt compelled to keep an eye on it and uh, clean up my diet, clean up my exercise routine, clean up my life so that, you know, I, I'm stronger to kind of battle it however I have to. And, you know, so far, uh, miraculous things. God gets all the glory on this one. Miraculous things are happening where, you know, craniopharyngioma, the nature of the, the brain tumor is it just grows into things and creates all kinds of mischief. This one's shrunk the last two scans yeah. and no one can explain it. So um, again, my faith tells me that um, the Lord is sparing me for another day, whatever whatever that is, and uh, I'm gonna try to be obedient. Let's talk about some of the various philanthropic things that you do. The Scott Hamilton Cares Foundation, talk a bit about that, where it is, where it's going. Yeah, well, we started off, uh, you know, it was, it was I Survived Cancer. And when I went through it, I lost my mom to cancer 40 years ago. And 20 years ago, I survived. And it was in that journey that I realized how much was missing in the cancer community, how much um, research needed to be done, obviously. But it was about you know patient support, uh, patient education. I went online to figure out what was going on with testicular cancer. And there were like you're a Harvard guy, yeah. right? right? Yeah. Try play one. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So there's like there's twelve syllable words, sometimes three to a sentence that everybody's intimidated by, right? Well, intimidated. Yeah. I thought I either I'm really sick or I'm really stupid, yeah. and I know that I negotiated my high school diploma, so I chose stupid. Yeah, yeah. But I realize there's a lot of people out, like me out there that can't read medical right. journal papers right. about their disease. So um, we we created uh, chemocare.com. Care started off as a initiative at the Tostig Cancer Center at the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, a few years ago, we decided to, to just start brand new, take the brand and build a dedicated foundation, thinking that we could really go broader, bigger, huger. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, foundation work yeah. is really hard, but every year we've, we've been able to grow. Every year we've been able to pay our bills. Every year we've been able to make a contribution. This, this year is the biggest one we've made. So Every year we're growing and we're building our base and we're setting a solid foundation. And um, 
you know, we're, we're really trying to fund the future of cancer treatment options. But you also evolve specific programs that allow different kinds of people to participate, like Skate to Eliminate. What's that all about? Skate to Eliminate Cancer uh, is the brainchild of Nadia Kogler, uh, who is a rank manager in, in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Wow. And when we launched CARES, we were based out of Knoxville. And she said, do you mind if I do this thing? And they said, sure, that sounds like fun. And so she put together this peer-to-peer fundraising program, like a 5K or a marathon or a bike race, you know, on ice. And she invited her, all their skaters to sign up and, and raise money through their email accounts and family and friends. And she raised in one afternoon $8,000. So it's like, okay, you're going on staff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're going to build this program. And so from that very first Skate to Eliminate in Knoxville, that was sort of almost like a flash fundraiser, um, Boston just did over $160,000 in, in an, after, an evening event. And it was spectacular to, to visit Boston Children's, where I was a patient, mm-hmm. to visit um, Mass General and to see the work they're doing in cancer and to, to benefit Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is like, you know, my goodness, the granddaddy of them all. And, mm-hmm. and to to really start getting involved with these different cancer centers, holding fundraisers in their towns that benefit them directly, and to take this model uh, nationwide with the help of U.S. figure skating has been um, an amazing growth uh, opportunity, and it's really given us our, our really foundation of our income. You're one of the first celebrities to make a commitment to the Make-A-Wish Foundation as early as 97, and uh, a lot of it was because of your own personal health issues, but a lot of it, I assume, is because you saw how much of a difference you could make in international philanthropy over the past 20 years? Well, I learned a lot from Make-A-Wish. You know, we, uh, when we started Stars on Ice, our very first corporate sponsor was Discover Card. Yeah. They were brand new, and we were brand new, so we were kind of like yeah. trying to figure this thing out together. And I did a lot of really cool things with Discover Card. You know, uh, part of it was they just, they just decided from the get-go, Make-A-Wish Foundation was going to be their charity. And so... Everything we did media-wise involved Make-A-Wish Kids, Make-A-Wish Foundation, and we really created a lot of awareness and really raised a lot of money for in our touring years because, you know, man, we were killing it back then with, yeah. you know, ticket sales sure. and um, people getting involved. So Make-A-Wish Foundation was a great thing for us. And in any tour, if, if a tour doesn't have a philanthropic identity, they're more than likely going to fail because it's not just about them. It's about how they impact the community, how they impact... Um, their fan base and how they really touch people that really uh, need to be uh, touched, moved, given uh, memories, given uh, opportunities. And so for us with Make-A-Wish, it was an amazing relationship that lasted a very long time, and I'm grateful for that every day. Um, Struggles in earlier life, illnesses, setback, teach you to be stronger, one of the central messages of the book. But you tell us what the central message of the book is. This is critical. Everybody that's watching, you better get one of these. Well, Finish First came out of um, a lot of a lot of conversations with different people about, um, you know, how people just don't. They always have that desire, like I'd love to win something, wouldn't it be? I'd love to get recognition. I'd love to have a victory. I'd love to have, you know, just, you know, if you want to honor somebody, you know, anywhere in Africa, just give them a certificate. They're they're thrilled, right? Yeah. But it's it's like or anywhere actually. Yeah. But when I think about you know growing up as a kid, wanting to feel special. It was always about winning something. It was always about what can I do to make my life special and meaningful and, and to really have that, feel that glow of, of having really 
a, a, a victory in my life. And I, you know, I had a lot of setbacks. I had a lot of knockdowns. I had a lot of things. And and through a lot of failure, through a lot of um, other components that would normally defeat somebody, I found a way to get stronger. And I figured out a way to go from being the guy that came in last a lot. I won some, but I was last in the important competitions. I needed to figure out a way to win. And I needed to figure out a way to, to, to really drive myself to take advantage of opportunity in order to be successful. And so it just sort of ended up in a book and it's, um, it's called Finish First and it's basically a call to action for anybody that wants to change their lives for the better. It's, it's an argument for and a guide to being the best you can be. And it's, it's about creating a platform of a lot of small victories to have that big victory right, right there in front of you. And, and it's, um, in many ways, it's counterculture because we live in a, yeah, in sure. a uh, you know, a yeah. participation trophy society. We live in an instant gratification society where if you need something, all you have to do is pick up your phone. Yeah. And so it's a lot of the drive that would normally live in us to really do something special is taken away from us through, oh my goodness, through social media, through electronics, through all these other things through the participation trophy, through recognition, through saving our, our children from the sting of failure. Mm. It's like failure, if, if you look at the recipe or a pie chart for success, yeah. failure is the largest single ingredient. In writing this, I figured out that in from my first steps on the ice all the way to my last year as a professional, I fell down 41,600 times. Got up every time. Got up 41,600 yeah. times. and. In that, I learned how to survive cancer. I learned how to survive um, all kinds of setbacks and issues in my life. And so the idea of Finish First is um, really just a book about how to take ownership of, of where you are, how to take uh, an accounting of what your, your, your qualities are, what your talents are, to really identify your purpose and then doing everything you can to answer that purpose. And... Um, my goodness, it can be anything from um, being, you know, uh, graduating college to being a CEO of a company to uh, winning a competition to being the best parent you can be to, um, you know, it, it has so many applications in um, athletics, academia, um, business, uh, parenting, personal excellence that um, um, I really truly believe that the, the second part of the title winning changes everything is really um, apropos because once you feel that victory, once you understand victory, then you, you crave it and you understand that there's a process in order to get there and there's a process that prevents you from getting there. You also write the number one predictor of whether you'll be a winner is if you decide to be one. What do you mean? It's a personal choice. I mean, there's lots of things that go into it. It's, it's showing up every day. It's outworking other people. It's making easy choices. It's, um, you know, it's being accountable. It's being uh, committed. It's, it's you know, keeping your eye on the prize. There's this path to victory. And here it is. Here's your lane. And all the stuff out here is going to try to pull you out of your lane and try to knock you off your path. But if you're able to stay in your lane and stay with the program you're probably going to be okay. And that's, that means like um, if, if I have a, a, a class or a, a session at 6 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning 
and some buddies go, hey, do you want to go to the midnight movie tonight? It's going to be really fun. It's a brand new, great mm -hmm. movie. It's never, you know, nobody's ever seen it before. We'll be the first ones to see it. It's like, do I make that choice? Or do I say, you know what? I'm going to see it as soon as the box office starts chilling yeah. a little bit. I'm going to make a decision to be rested for my class or my, or my session. And then I get more out of it. It, 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 and then you get consistent with those decisions. And my goodness, it changes everything. Five years from now, where are you? Five years from now, um, I want to have an Olympic level skating program where we're building these skaters uh, toward the Olympics. Um, I want to have at least um, uh, advanced, you know, three or four or five uh, proven treatments, you know, in immunotherapy and targeted therapies to help people live their lives more legitimately longer without the, the sting of chemotherapy. Um, I'd love to uh, have CARES have offices all over the country where we're able to help people one-on-one -on -one with their challenges and their issues, um, possibly in proton centers around the country, which is a really precise form of uh, radcare.org. Um, a really precise form of uh, radiation that doesn't expose you to the secondary cancers and all the other toxicities of traditional radiation. Um, there's a million things I'd like to be doing in five years. You know, I know that uh, in five years, um, two of my four kids will have launched. So I'll be, you know, um, kind of... Half empty now. Yeah, that'll Quarter. be... I'll, I'll be... My, my heart will be a little bit broken, but at the same time, you know... Um, they come back. I just want to be. I just want to be healthy and active in five years. That's the first thing, and that's up to me to stay in my lane and work out every day. But um, the biggest part is to see the skating academy grow into what I know it can be, and for Cares to become, uh, you know, a, a big dog in the cancer community and to grow our programs, grow um, our our understanding and influence in the cancer research space, and and to make an impact, you know, for those that are fighting for their lives. Oh, is that all? That's it. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we did the interview with Scott Hamilton after a uh, National Predators amazing one nothing victory over the Vegas Knights, and all Scott Hamilton wanted to talk about is the hockey game, uh, even though he, he was shut in because the ice was, was too much for him to drive, which was ironic. But when you think about it, the idea of kids who just want to have fun and what he wants to do is get them to skate whether it's because they like hockey or because of high ice skating what what's wrong with that especially in the Sun Belt like Nashville with the NHL teaching kids and expanding the game and expanding sport what do you think well yeah you know you know you and I have talked about it on the show before the um, and I think you had a great interview a while back with the uh, one of the minor league hockey commissioners about how hockey's really had this great expansion across the Sun Belt in the United States and you know, partially it's a migration, people moving, but partially is, you know, programs like this, facilities for people to skate. Skating isn't cheap if you try to become a world-class figure skater, but it's not a bad way to spend a family afternoon. And, you know, he was talking about it, especially about, you know, if you have hockey, you know, one person in the family learns to skate. But if you have a skating program, the whole family does it together. And I think that, you know, that grows. That's the, the kind of right kind of uh, green shoots to look for if you're trying to popularize a sport or a program or just simply physical activity uh, for the sake of uh, not all becoming couch potatoes. So I think that's really interesting. And I think when you look at the arc of American figure skating, which at once was kind of one of the top three programs in the world, and I don't know if it still is considered that, but it certainly doesn't have 
the big, big star power that it once had in the Nancy Kerrigan, Michelle Kwan, um, Scott Hamilton days, right? And he talked a lot about figure skating in the U.S. He's mentioned the good old days of skating. What do you think is going to happen in terms of that in the U.S.? Do you think that it's a short-term solution, there's a long-term solution? What do you think is shaping up right now for American figure skating and, you know, the federation that goes with it? Well, the good old days to him is, is almost about the good new days as well. He is actively involved as an ambassador. Um, he gets advice. He showed me his call list from the kids who were going to the Olympics. He calls them kids, and he's in his 50s, so I guess I understand that. But he, in many ways, is the torchbearer for the legitimacy of skating. And these are athletes. These aren't only show people and entertainers. And that's exactly his point. And maybe the names aren't as big as they used to be uh, as far as American names. But, you know, watching the Russian artistry, watching the North Korean pairs, uh, uh, watching the Canadians, uh, the, the athletes from the country of Russia as opposed to the pure Russian team, it's inspiring with some names that uh, have four syllables that are hard to pronounce. You know, what's your take on all of that? Yeah, I, look, I think you're right. I think, you know, we see American kids rooting for Arsenal and Tottenham, you know, at this point in time. So why not root for a German figure skater or a North Korean figure skater or a Canadian figure skater? I think you may not need the big American names to inspire uh, American youth to, to go into this figure skating racket. So I think that's kind of interesting. And I think... In, in Scott Hamilton's day, you know, we were post-Cold War um, and, and, and the Olympics leading up to that. I know the Cold War shaped a lot of the Olympic sentiment I had as a kid. Um, we were always wanting to beat the Russians and the East Germans, right? That doesn't exist anymore. And the one Cold War we had going on, which is North Korea, South Korea, has kind of melted away for this Olympics. So it's an interesting thing. But I do, I do think that the big earning potential for an American figure skater is still exponentially higher than for someone from a non-U.S. skater. Um, and I think that there's, there's, a, that's, there, there's promise there that leads to the, eco the economics of the, the, the sport and helps it along a little bit. The one thing to watch, by the way, is Scott Hamilton is still directly involved in some of these post-gold medal skating tours that happened for the three or four months after the Olympics. Watch for the names to be dominated by uh, uh, from uh, uh, Russia, from Canada, from Eastern Europe, the Italian uh, a pair of skaters that won. So it's not only American skaters, as we said. And watch for Scott Hamilton to continue his ways on and off the ice, his CARES Foundation, the Special Olympics, his cancer research, all of the things that make Scott Hamilton great will continue on in the future. Rick Haro, speak with you next time. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carla Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.